Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Pem Medicine, advancing medicine through precision diagnostics and novel therapies. Your host is Dr. Lee Friedman. Cerebrovascular neurosurgery is the highly specialized care of all aspects of cerebrovascular disease. What are the most common diseases treated by a cerebrovascular neurosurgeon, and what are the latest treatment options and advances in this field? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Michelle Smith, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Smith, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm not that familiar with the field of cerebrovascular neurosurgery. Could you give us a thumbnail of what uh, your field entails? Sure. Um, So in general, cerebrovascular neurosurgery is when interventions are performed for diseases, like you said, that affect the blood vessels of the brain, of the neck, and of the spinal cord, so anything neuronal. Um, It's kind of a very broad topic, so it includes things like stroke, but also includes brain aneurysms, brain AVMs, um, carotid stenosis, and, for example, spinal cord AVMs. And are there general ways that you think about the interventions that you provide? For modern cerebrovascular surgery, neurosurgery, there's really two main forms of intervention. So one is open microvascular neurosurgery, and then the other one is endovascular neurosurgery. And it sounds like uh, endovascular is through the blood vessels, were as, as open as through the skin. Is, is that right? That's correct. So with open microvascular neurosurgery, you know, in, in a nutshell, it's where I have to make a cut in the skin. And, for example, for brain surgery or aneurysm surgery, I have to do a craniotomy or make an opening in the skull. And then using a really highly specialized microscope, um, you know, dissect down to the blood vessels, do microdissections, and, for example, clip an aneurysm. Whereas on the flip side of that, for endovascular neurosurgery, um, like you said, we're able to put a sheath in the femoral artery, and because all the blood vessels in the body are interconnected, using x-ray guidance, we can thread catheters through there, get them all the way up to the blood vessels in the brain, and, for example, coil an aneurysm. So when I'm doing that, to treat an aneurysm per se, I I usually have to remind my patients they just had brain surgery from the inside out. (laughs) Very well put. And and it would sound like when possible, endovascular might involve uh, less uh, morbidity and and faster recovery? Yeah, when when a patient and a specific pathology is most appropriate for that type of treatment, yes, then recovery is often faster. Sometimes we still need to use um, open neurosurgery, and, and that's why it's nice that I do both because I have very frank conversations about both types of treatments with my patients. And I know with, with uh, cardiac angiography, occasionally they're going through the brachial artery or radial artery. Is, is it always femoral when you do an endovascular neurosurgical procedure? I would say at least 95% of the time it's femoral, um, but occasionally we do have to do brachial um, you know, for example, if someone's bilateral femoral arteries or lower aortic arch is impaired. Well, maybe we could talk about a specific disease state. Uh, carotid stenosis stroke is, is such a common problem in the United States. What do you have to offer in those kind of problems? Yeah, no, I agree with that. It's so common. Um, so usually, so for acute ischemic stroke, um, endovascular techniques and technology have come um, a long way. So if a patient, for example, is not eligible for IVTPA, which is the FDA-approved standard, then they often would make it onto my angio suite for endovascular treatment, especially if they're within about an eight-hour window. Um, And it's great because often we're able to thread those microcatheters up into the blocked brain arteries 
um, and use, occasionally we still use intra-arterial TPA, but I'll be honest with you, the majority of the time we're able to use mechanical embolectomy devices and extract that clot within 20 minutes of a patient being on the table. Um, there's a lot of new uh, mechanical extraction devices, probably the most recent um, are the stent retrievers, where um, it's a form of a, a self-expanding stent that's on the end of a microwire, and once you put that microwire and microcatheter beyond the area of the clot, um, you unsheath the stent, and what it does is it presses that blood clot against the wall of the artery. You leave that open for about 10 minutes to allow blood flow to recirculate again, and then you're able to actually pull the whole system back, and it has the clot contained within that stent. That's interesting. And do you leave any residual stent to keep the artery open, or everything is taken out? It's interesting you'd ask that. So with the current stent retrievers, everything comes out, and we're usually able to extract the whole clot. There's other types of stents that we potentially could leave in if we wanted to, but the current stent retrievers are not FDA-approved for implants, so everything comes out. Is there data yet in terms of intravenous uh, TPA versus uh, intraarterial getting right up there uh, next to the clot? Yeah, so the, the most recent data had come out through major studies in New England Journal of Medicine last February. What it did is it compared head-to-head IV TPA against endovascular within the acute phase, like within the first three to four hours. That's almost not fair. Um, and, and what was interesting is there were no significant differences between the different groups, both in complications and with, with outcomes, which some might tell us, oh, well, there's no benefit of endovascular. But what's interesting is often we use endovascular when someone's not eligible for TPA mm-hmm. or if they're outside of the window to give TPA. Um, so even though these studies stated that endovascular isn't better than TPA, I think there's a role for both. And I imagine time is of the essence in these type of uh, interventions. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we like to see great pictures where we have good recanalization and good flow, but what's important is the actual patient clinical outcome, that the earlier that that um, revascularization happens, that, that is associated with improved outcomes. So keep encouraging our patients to know the warning signs and to, to get into the emergency rooms if something is uh, brewing. Exactly. You don't want to just sleep off, you know, an episode of aphasia. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me today is Dr. Michelle Smith, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Smith, why don't we turn to aneurysms, uh, maybe not quite as common, but uh, certainly a potentially very dangerous problem. How do you approach uh, the presence of aneurysms and treatment of those? Correct. Um, So I guess certain patients show up with ruptured aneurysms, so we treat those obviously in an emergency fashion. And then more and more patients um, are being found to have incidental aneurysms. They might have an MRI for migraines per se, or maybe they have a strong family history of brain aneurysms. And the MRAs um, today uh, are such good resolution, they're picking up very small aneurysms. So often I observe aneurysms that are very small and relatively low risk with patients getting serial or annual MRAs. But when an aneurysm um, is an appropriate size or location or risk factor for rupture, you know, we go ahead and counsel on treatment. And again, certain aneurysms and certain patients for different patient reasons are only eligible for endovascular treatment or for um, open microvascular treatment. But when all things are equal and a patient could have either, I really counsel them that they have the choice. And you might imagine that nine out of 10 times people don't 
want their head cut open. <laughs> um, so they go ahead with an endovascular treatment. So the main form of endovascular treatment is really the tried and true um, coil embolization of an aneurysm. So that's when I'm able to navigate that microcatheter all the way up into the neck of an aneurysm. And because the other end of that catheter is outside of the body, I'm able to push through it these little tiny platinum coils. And we do what's called packing the aneurysm with coils. And once it's completely packed with coils, the blood can't possibly um, get into that aneurysm anymore, and it protects it from bursting. So that's the mainstay of aneurysm treatment. Um, but the technology has also come really far with that. So certain aneurysms, for example, that have wide necks and maybe have branching vessels arising from the base, require some adjuncts. So they might require stent-assisted coil embolization or balloon-assisted coil embolization where a balloon is temporarily blown up while the coils are forming a basket, and then eventually at the end of the case, the balloon um, is taken out as well. Probably um, the, the most recent and one of the most exciting forms of endovascular treatment for aneurysms, it's what's called a flow diversion device. Um, you know, I guess the, the brand name is called uh, pipeline embolization device. And it almost, we're not really supposed to call it um, a stent, but it's almost like a stent only with really fine-knit mesh. So when you deploy that across the neck of the aneurysm, it diverts the flow from going into the aneurysm, and the flow goes in the normal laminar direction. So you get stagnation of flow within the aneurysm, and then chronically over 6 to 12 months, um, that aneurysm completely shuts down. So it's nice because we don't have to use coils with that. So sometimes if coils were going to cause mass effect, you know, you don't need to use them anymore. And forgive my ignorance, with, with the coils as you're putting them in, is there ever downstream embolization of those? Um, so that would be, you know, a quoted complication, but it's extremely, extremely rare. Um, you know, I would say maybe one of the the most frequent, although very, very infrequent, probably less than 1% of the time complication with the endovascular, the coiling is that you could um, perforate the dome of the aneurysm while you're placing that first coil. But as I tell my patients, you know, if your aneurysm is going to rupture, um, that's a perfect time to have it rupture in a completely controlled setting. So in that situation, we simply um, complete packing of the aneurysm dome with coils, and that stops the perforation. Very interesting. And, and with time, are we talking about uh, something that clots over and endothelializes? Uh, or what happens with time with these coils? That's exactly correct. So um, the initial coil mass not only prevents the blood from getting into there, but um, a thrombus forms within the coil mass. And then your body does form a new, I tell my patients, your body does the rest of the work. It forms a new layer of skin. So it does neoendothelialization within the vessel lumen. And I, I equate it for my patients to, you know, when you get a cut on your hand and you get a scab and then eventually new skin forms underneath the scab. So your body's for, doing a similar thing. Um, but we do have to watch these coiled aneurysms and clipped aneurysms chronically over time because coiled aneurysms have up to a 20% rate of recanalization. So that's one of the downsides of, a, of this minimally invasive treatment. But the thing is, if it recanalizes, usually we can just simply put more coils into it. So it's not a big deal. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the same risk of bursting. Very interesting. And, and so that implies to me that uh, there does need to be some follow-up when uh, an aneurysm is treated by uh, placement of coils. What, what is the typical follow-up? Usually I get a baseline MRA scan because obviously that's a non-invasive um, scan at the time someone's being discharged. And they usually are discharged the next day after a treement, endovascular treatment. 
Um, and you compare that to the longer um, hospital stay and longer recovery course with open craniotomy and clipping. Um, and then at three months, we check an MRA again just to make sure there's no recanalization there. If I'm concerned about something, I'd bring someone in quicker. But otherwise, we check an angiogram again at six months. And then usually at 18 months, potentially three years and five years. And then it gets spaced out and they eventually graduate. But we do keep an eye on our patients. It sounds like, and it sounds like with, with very good reason, with that 20% uh, requiring retreatment with the coiling. Are there times when you absolutely have to do an open procedure for an aneurysm? There are times. Um, there's also times where there's some gray area, but there are some times when we definitively have to do an open procedure. Um, so certain aneurysms, for example, usually MCA aneurysms, bifurcation or trifurcation aneurysms are best served by open treatments, and that's because there's so many branch vessels arising from a really wide base of an aneurysm, it almost universally looks like that, um, that it's almost impossible for me to stent the parent and branch artery and put an adequate coil mass in there, and it's, it's a very straightforward surgery, so those patients are usually much better served with open craniotomy and clipping. They do very well, and actually the the upside of going through a craniotomy is there's only a up to 5% recurrence rate with the clippings. And what is the recovery time after a, a typical open craniotomy uh, aneurysm repair? Yeah, if it's an elective surgery, patients do really well. So they usually spend one night overnight in the neuro ICU, and then they usually spend two more days on the uh, neurosurgery floor, and then they're usually discharged home. Um, and back to their baseline, you know, patients do tell me they feel kind of fatigued, um, you know, and just off a little bit for three or four weeks afterwards, um, but, um, but recover very well. And it's interesting, gone are the days when we, you know, shave half the head for an open surgery. We shave about an inch of the incision line, and I, I, I pay a lot of attention to this. We always shave behind the hairline, so, so even when you have that that little um, absence of hair, patients can still fold the rest of their hair over, and, and you can barely notice they have an incision there. It's really wonderful. That that sounds like a major improvement and very important for, for patients. Yeah, because this, I mean, really, this is what patients notice. It's I noticed that we just did major brain surgery and clipped their aneurysm, but they notice those things. And then since you are uh, perhaps touching the, the endothelium or affecting the endothelium and working in the brain, is there any role for post-procedural uh, anticoagulation or any anti-inflammatories such as steroids? Correct. So there really um, isn't, and there hasn't been. And we haven't found, occasionally I'll put some local papaverin on a vessel if I'm concerned that it has some spasm at the time of surgery, you know, visually. I also routinely perform an intraoperative angiogram um, because we can truly see whether the aneurysm is completely gone. And if, for example, we see a little remnant at the time of, I can just reposition that clip because I tell my patients, we don't want to do this twice. <laughs> um, but we usually don't need any anticoagulants or, or steroids for this. Patients do really well without that. Well, I very much want to thank Dr. Michelle Smith for being with us today and outlining for us the exciting field of cerebrovascular neurosurgery with a special focus on ischemic stroke and the treatment of aneurysms. This is fascinating, and uh, keep up the very good work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Dr. Friedman. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. To download this podcast or to access others in the series, please visit reachmd.com pen and visit Penn Physician Link, an exclusive program that helps referring physicians connect with Penn.
Here you can find education resources, information about our expedited referral process, and communication tools. To learn more, visit www.penmedicine.org slash physician link. Thank you for listening.